Let's pray for Linnea. <laughs> oh, Lord. Mm. God, we thank you that you're here. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to hear your voice through Linnea this morning. We pray you would bless her mind with clarity and focus that she could hear what you're speaking through these words this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, friends. Well, if there was any pretense at being very slick and together, I feel like that has been entirely <laughs> erased in the last. So this is more like a living room, right? Um, a living room that's on African time. Although I've been given strictly 30 minutes. We will see. It's, look, it's even published in the back there. I'm being counted down. Apparently I'm the worst criminal of all. <laughs> okay, well I better get going because I'm going to sprint us through a lot of material. We're in Acts, everybody. If anyone doesn't have a Bible, um, there's a stack of them here. So raise your hand and someone will deliver that Bible to you. So I am going to speak today. There are slides. Um, and whenever Chris ambles back to the slide area, he will start them. Um, okay, here are my notes. And the first thing I'm going to do is sprint us through some chapters that we're going to skip, and then I'm going to focus on um, Acts chapter 26. And I've called this The Theology of Influence, St. Paul before Agrippa II, and Agrippa's sister. Um, but we'll get into that. First, I'm going to sprint us through, I think it's like four chapters, three chapters, starting at actually chapter 21. So let's go to the next slide, and we'll just give us something to look at. Um, which is a little small. But anyway, it's a print of Paul stirring up contention and riots, which is basically the content of chapter 26 through 20, or chapter 21 through 26. So we heard from Nellie that um, Paul leaves the Ephesians. It's a really emotional farewell. Um, he then starts his journey into Jerusalem. Um, he stays along the way at a home of a man who has five daughters who are prophetic, and they start prophesying over him that think bad things are going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Moreover, a man visits named Agrabus, who ties Paul in his own belt as a prophetic action of Paul's fate in Jerusalem. Okay, So things are getting pretty dire. Paul knows what he's stepping into. And then Paul says, and they say, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Stop here. Start your ministry here. Why, why go walk into that kind of destiny of, of difficulty. And Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? I know what I need to do. I need to go. I need to step into this cauldron of violence and, and of standing up for what is true and right, essentially. So lo and behold, all of these prophecies do happen. Um, in, again, in chapter 21, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's in the temple performing purification for a number of reasons I won't go into, but there's a mob at the temple, 
and they falsely accuse him of bringing in a Greek into the temple. It was basically a trumped-up charge because they saw him out in the city with another friend of his who was a Greek, and they assumed that he had brought him into the temple and desecrated it. So basically, this massive mob is stirred up. They're beating him, okay? They're seeking to take his life. This is murderous. And I've never been in a mob personally, but it's... It's monstrous how people change in those contexts, okay? Um, so what happens is word reaches the tribune, um, who is basically the guard of the city, uh, the Roman guard, and he wages into this, you know, wades into this mob with his guards, and they pull him out, and it's so intense that they're carrying him over their heads through the mob. And these are... Romans, Roman soldiers, right? So things are at a quite a violent pitch. Um, so then they get him to the barracks. At the barracks, Paul um, asks if he can speak to the people, and he gets permission to. He is standing on the steps and um, speaks to the people in Hebrew in their own language. So he's basically saying, I'm one of you, I can talk to you in your language. He commences to give testimony as soon as he mentions that he is here to speak the gospel. This is my second time tripping over this. Um, to speak the gospel to the Gentiles, the crowd explodes and become viol becomes violent again. And Paul gets pulled back into the barracks, right? Okay? This is all chapter 21. <laughs> then we move on to chapter 22. Um, they're in the Roman, Roman justice was examination by flogging if you were not a citizen. So you would be beaten until you basically confessed what they wanted you to say. And so Paul is being stripped to do this, for this to happen, and he basically announces that he's a Roman citizen, and the tribune is shocked, finds out uh, that Paul was born a citizen. He didn't pay a bribe in order to become that. He was actually the real deal. So then the tribune says, okay, well, never mind. We're not going to examine you, examine you by beating you. Um, so then what happens is the tribune calls. Now, this is at a low level. We go to a medium level and then a high level. The highest level is Agrippa, okay? So the first level is this calling of the council by the tribune, so he brings in the people that are accusing him, which is basically most of the Sanhedrin, um, and Paul is invited to make his defense. Paul starts to speak, and then he gets struck in the mouth. And again, this is all really violent, um, by the man who's standing next to him who had been commanded by Ananias, the high priest, to strike him in the mouth anytime he says anything untrue. This is testimony at a cost. <laughs> and so Paul gets a little snappy, you know, and he's like, I need to be able to talk, and he has a smart answer. And then he, he's told, Ananias told him to do that, and so he's like, oh, I'm quite sorry. I didn't mean to defy authority. So even in the midst of all this, Paul is very, he recognizes authority and isn't openly defiant or angry. So... Um, There, during this council that's called by the tribune, um, Paul does something really crafty and intentional where he is recognizing things are not going to go his way. 
And um, that's not new for him, but he has a purpose, and he recognizes God has told him he's to go and preach to the Gentiles and go all the way to Rome. So that is in his mind, and he recognizes that at a low level like this, he's not actually going to get anywhere. And so he does this really crafty thing where he says, am I here because I believe in the resurrection to the point where I am testifying all over the world that Jesus has risen from the dead? And he knows he's going to cause dissension by saying that. And the reason that that causes dissension is because the Sadducees and the Pharisees have very different ideas about resurrection from the dead. So they start fighting with each other. <laughs> One half is calling Paul an angel of the Lord suddenly, you know, and the other half is saying, you know, down with him, we want to execute him now. So he was very intelligent and basically gets himself out of a jam by creating an infighting situation. Okay. That, now on to chapter 23. <laughs> oh, Lord. I'm trying to do this very quickly. So things get to a place where um, everyone is so angry at him that um, there is a plot that's formed to kill Paul and a number of people that are in, um, I think they're in the Sanhedrin, don't actually know. They decide, they take a pact that they're not going to eat or drink until Paul is murdered. And part of the plot is they have him moved to have a trial in, amongst the Sanhedrin. And during that move, they're going to basically jump Paul and kill him. And, of course, this has to happen quickly because if you're not eating or drinking, you won't have the strength to do any murdering, right? So... <laughs> Um, at any rate, the nephew, <laughs> it's true, <laughs> there's some practical outcomes to this kind of determination. So at any rate, um, Paul's nephew hears word of this, and he runs to the tribune, and he must have been quite young, because there's this beautiful verse where the tribune um, is talking to this young boy and takes him by the hand and pulls him aside away from all the frightening stuff and says, what do you have to say to me? And this little boy tells about this plot. And so Felix arranges for a troop of 270 soldiers, 70 of them horsemen, to send Paul to Felix in Caesarea at 3 a.m. in the morning. So Paul is quite a hot item. Okay? He gets sent safely to Caesarea. Then, of course, the Sanhedrin follows him. First thing next morning, they hear about it, they're after him. And they're in front of Felix and they're saying, we need, we need you to hear about all of our contention with this man. Um, so Felix holds a hearing. This is the second level. Um, so Paul protests. He says the only thing that was wrong was that there was an accusation that the resurrection was a problem, all that kind of stuff. Um, and what is interesting is that Felix understands some things about the way, this, this thing that Paul is preaching, and his wife, Drusilla, is a Jew. As a matter of fact, Drusilla is apparently the, the sister of Agrippa II. Um, so there's a bit of a family dynamic to all this we're going to go into in a little bit. Um, so at any rate, Felix recognizes that things are not going to go so great for Paul. He basically shuts it down, and then later on, at, um, 
when the Sanhedrin is basically left, he goes to ask more questions of Paul, and he brings Drusella with him. So it's very interesting because Felix has a curiosity, and Paul is able to explain in a way that is clear to Felix, and they carry on conversations that are apparently more long-term. And, and, and Paul is with him for two years um, because Felix basically just forestalls to, to resolve the situation. And that, um, that situation persists until Festus is appointed. And two years later, it's not like anyone's forgotten about Paul. As soon as F Festus is in charge, this is in chapter 25, again, the Sanhedrin is after him right away. One of the first items of business, they're pounding on Festus's door to deal with this man. Um, and they attempt this other sly little um, ambush on his life where they try to have Festus move him to Jerusalem and they have a plan to ambush him again on that, during that journey. And Festus says, no, why would I do that? I'm going to go up there anyway. I'll hear his testimony up there. So you can hear them kind of grinding their teeth, you know, like, we can't ever get this man. Um, so uh, Festus is another second-level trial. Um, but he's recognizing he has a bit of a problem, and this is where we begin chapter 26. This is the setup for chapter 26. Um, let's go to the next slide, if we can. Okay, this is a painting of Paul speaking before Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. Um, I'm going to have to rely on you to do some of this reading because I've done this kind of survey of the previous chapters to just give you an idea of how ridiculous this whole story is and how dramatic. Um, so I'm going to have to summarize some of Paul's explanation. And if you want to read at the same time, I'm going to be slamming you with a lot of information. But the hope is that it brings you to a place where you really recognize the kind of... Um, sold-out surrender that Paul had to Jesus and to the gospel um, before Gentiles and before people of power. Um, so Festus decides to keep Paul, Paul where he is, and when people in government um, in the Roman Empire were appointed, there was this typical kind of ceremonial welcome that would happen. So various officials would come visit you when you'd been appointed. Um, there was kind of like a handover, and there was kind of this installment of new power. And so what happened was not only had Festus been assigned, but... Um, Agrippa and Bernice, who were, Agrippa was part of the family of Herod. So he was part of the family line of Herod the Great. So his great-great-grandfather was Herod the Great. His great-uncle was Herod, oh, I'm going to get the name wrong, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And then Agrippa was a sibling to Drusilla and Bernice. So there were four siblings, and the other one was, I don't know where he was, but the people that concern us are these three. So Agrippa had been 
His assignment was also as king, king of Jerusalem. But he's a bit of a false king. This is something to bear in mind. Um, He's a Jew, but he's kind of considered the worst of the Jews because he was in co- kind of in, in, co- uh, in cahoots, yes, cahoots, that's a good word, in cahoots with the Roman Empire. And his, he was politically involved and in so many ways um, taking sides with the oppressor. And though he was a Jew, he was not necessarily considered a holy Jew because his his theology was a little wonky, and moreover, he was involved in a lot of pagan hierarchies of power, and he also, um, his, one of his jobs was to assign the high priests, which means that he's monkeying in something that's very sacred to a lot of the Jews, and he's not doing it in a way that people, that please the powers that be. So, these are the people that, some of the people that Paul is standing in front of and making his defense in front of. Uh, Festus recognizes he needs to send him to Jerusalem, but he doesn't know under what charge to do that, and that's a bit of a problem. So he has to examine Paul and hear from him himself to be able to know what to bring in front of Caesar to send him off. It would be irresponsible of him as a leader to not have a very clear accusation. So Paul's job here is to defend himself to give a clear understanding of why he has stirred up so much violence and dissent. Okay, so this is a specific instance where when I was reading it, I realized that what we're dealing with is someone that has intense influence, Paul. On one level, he's influenced a lot of people to violence because he stands for something so new and shocking and controversial, but then we see in this particular instance of this trial that there is something about him that is able to influence and change an environment where he is supposed to be on the defensive, but somehow the whole situation seems to shift and suddenly Agrippa feels like he's the one on trial. Paul makes it really personal. He's basically evangelizing. And that's extremely interesting because this situation is tense. We have all of the great men of the city having traveled up from Jerusalem to come hear him, and you have kings and queens and great political power gathered in the room, and the whole room goes silent and is ready to hear what Paul has to say. Now, this is an artistic rendering. The next rendering is a little more accurate to what you would actually find based on archaeological digs that they've done. The king would sit up there. The defendant is in the front. Then there's a whole courtyard that's just filled with people standing around you, listening to every word that you say. Okay, so from this kind of beautiful explanation that Paul gives of himself and then how personal it becomes, I identified seven components to um, this particular instance of influence. Um, This is a one-time event that affected many. And I'm going to kind of run through the next couple slides to just give some context. This is our Agrippa, Agrippa II, a portrait taken when he was young and handsome. 
Um, next we have his coinage, which again, he mixes pagan kind of imagery with his Jewish heritage. So this is kind of like defiling to the Jews and this was the currency they had to use. Um, next slide is Bernice, a very fashionable lady. Just to get a sense of context, next. We're gonna stay on this. This is uh, my, my friend El Greco's portrait of Paul. I wish I would have been able to know El Greco, but I'd have to be Spanish and from a couple hundred years ago. Okay, um, so if we read Acts 26, which I don't have the time to do completely, um, we'll find that there are some elements, and I, I would really love for you to do this on your own. Read this. It's a beautiful chapter. And then I want you to check and see that I have made some good distillations or not. You can argue with me. Um, but these are the seven elements. Um, it's a very concise story. And if you're going to influence within a particular instance of time, it's very important to know your point and stick with it and be very, have everything honed down to a few condensed points. And Paul doesn't stray from that. He's very concise. He brings it down to a few points, and I'm hoping that I will do the same. Um, he's also very inclusive. So there's a verse in chapter 22 where um, Paul is speaking to, to Agrippa about his own qualifications as a Jew, and he's saying, our God that we both believe in. So he's ap appealing to Agrippa and saying, inclusively, we both share this territory, we both share this belief. Now this is a really remarkable thing, considering, and the next element is graciousness, considering who Agrippa is, okay? Because it takes a great deal of willingness to forgive. This man represents a murderous line of tyrants, essentially. His great-grandfather slaughtered children, innocent children, in trying to get out Jesus when he was an infant. His great-uncle beheaded John the Baptist. Okay, these are, I mean, you have to get over resentment. You have to get over um, justified rage, in some cases, and see a person, not, what, and they're, not their political posture. And I think that that's something really important that carries over to us quite well. Sometimes there are people in our lives that seem to represent or symbolize something that we feel often justified anger about, and we're not able to see the person. And Paul did manage to see the person, and his life was at stake. And he saw the person, not the situation. I think that's incredibly powerful, and it's something that influential people over and over again, they have that ability. And they're, they are able to forgive and be gracious. They're also anticipatory. So in presenting the gospel and in presenting um, basically evangelism as a story, Paul's own story, um, Paul could anticipate the kinds of um, objections that Agrippa would have. So he has this whole preamble where he talks about his qualifications as a Jew. And the reason that you ask that question, I mean, I ask, like, why is he doing this? 
And I realized it's because Agrippa needs to know where he's coming from in order to get over a lot of his questions about, well, why are you qualified to talk about this? You know? So in a way, Paul was able to anticipate, where are you coming from, Agrippa? Like, what's going to be difficult for you to understand about my story? And I'm going to try and be in your, your shoes and see things from your perspective and pull in all of that information early before it becomes a barrier for you. Um, another interesting thing is that, this is my fifth element, is he's, Paul is very focused, and actually this is slightly different than concise. What I mean is that in the, at the end of Paul's explanation, um, Festus kind of gets up and says, Paul, you're crazy. Your great learning is driving you mad. He stands up. He just kind of like, you can imagine the whole room is kind of like being whipped up to this fervor. And Festus stands up and says, you're crazy. And that's a kind of a personal insult, right? Paul doesn't respond to it. He doesn't take per things personally. He's able to focus on what the point is and not get distracted, either by personal insults or discussions about politics or theology or nothing. He goes straight for the point, and he's going straight for Agrippa's heart. Um, and then the truth is he gets so personal with Agrippa. He says, I know that you believe in the prophets. I know that you do. And then as Agrippa's response is, in Paul, in such a short time, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? <laughs> and Paul says, yes, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> My gosh, Paul's supposed to be defending his life. And he has given up on his life so much that he says, no, I care more about your life more about your eternal life, and you are a tyrant. You have beheaded, you, I'm sure you have. Your politics are politics of violence. And we talked about some of that earlier, even this morning. Can we forgive the people that have done those beheadings? Can we care more about their eternal life? That's what Paul's doing right here. And the thing is, he says, yes, that's what I'm doing right now, as I'm trying to persuade you to be a Christian. But then he follows it up with humor. <laughs> and he says, yes, I wish that you were the, what I am, which is a completely shocking thing. What you are, I'm a king. You're a prisoner. Yes, I've got an amen from up there. <laughs> Um, and so Paul says, yes, I do wish that you were everything that I am. And you can probably just imagine the breath of everyone going, oh, I don't want to be what you are. And he says, except for these chains, of course. <laughs> so you, there's kind of this levity at the same time. It is serious, but Paul is entirely himself. And that's kind of the final element that I, I saw in this basic rundown of people of influence. And, and I really wanted to bring in the example of this incredible man named 
uh, Fenelon, who is a French archbishop um, in the 16th century. I just don't have time. I have three minutes and eight seconds and six seconds and five seconds. <laughs> um, but what I do want to do, we're just going to have to, that's the man himself. He's incredible. I suggest that you go and do some research and find out about him. He was a man of peace during a time of great violence and infighting in the church and during a time of incredible decadence. He was brought into the court of Louis XIV. So let's go for, forward a little bit. He was a man of influence. Uh, that's Madame Guillon, who was one of his friends. I'm not going to go into it. Keep going. <laughs> This is, um, he ended up being one of the mentors of the Dauphin of France. So he was the second in line for, um, to be the king after Louis XIV. This little child looks mighty um, sweet and doughy-eyed. But let me tell you, he was a, he was a hellion. He was awful. And, and um, Fillon was... Uh, he, I'm trying to pronounce things correctly, um, was the mentor of this child. And he had an influence over him so that at the end of his life, which was unfortunately short, um, he was a godly king. And he was, well, he wasn't actually, he didn't get to be the king. Um, we're not going to go into that either, but regardless, um, we have letters um, Felion was famous for um, a lot of things that he wrote. I have a book here called The Seeking Heart, and he wrote letters to this young boy. Um, and they're quite beautiful. And I want to end on one of those letters um, because I was able to look at the seven key components of influence over a lifetime. And able to kind of extract some of that from both Paul and Ferrion's story. But the most beautiful thing, which is the final slide, that's Louis XIV, is this prayer. And I want us to pray it together. Now, please understand, this is um, the, an archbishop in the Roman Catholic Church writing a letter to a young boy who's spoiled who is going to be the king of France. And this is to the heart of that child. Looking past all the politics, looking past all of the difficulty of his intractable personality. And this is the prayer. So I would like us to pray it. Um, I'm going to read it out loud and just open up your hearts and receive it. And let's just make this prayer into the posture of our hearts. My God, I want to give myself to you. Okay, let's try that again. My God, I want to give myself to you. Give me the courage to do this. My spirit within me sighs after you. Strengthen my will. Take me. If I don't have the strength to give you anything, everything, then draw me by the sweetness of your love. Lord, who do I belong to if not to you? What a horror to belong to myself and my own passions. 
Help me to find happiness in you, for there is no happiness outside of you. Why am I afraid to break out of my chains? Do the things of this world mean more to me than you? Am I afraid to give myself to you? What a mistake. It is not even I who give myself to you, but you who give yourself to me. Take my heart. What a joy it is to be with you, to be quiet so that I may hear your voice. Feed me and teach me out of your depths. Oh God, you only make me love you. Why should I fear to give you everything and draw close to you? To be left to the world is more frightening than this. Your mercy can overcome any obstacle, and I am unworthy of you, but I can become a miracle of your grace. This young boy did become a miracle of God's grace through Fenelon's influence. So I want to say over all of us, and I want to pray over all of us, we are intended to be people of influence, small and great. We are intended to carry the kingdom of God into the world and to change the world because we're in it. Like Paul did when he opened his mouth. So I'm going to pray over all of us, not in the words of a French archbishop, but in my own small little words. <laughs> Can we stand up? Stand up. Lord God, many of us have chains in life. We have circumstances that are difficult or that hamper us. Many of us also have talents in life. Many of us have opportunities and giftings. But God, you always care about character and heart before talent. And Father, only love can teach us how to influence. And influence is a fruit of love. And when you open our hearts and love us first, we know how to love daringly and to really lose our lives for the sake of other people. And influence will be the end result. So Father, we give to you even our chains, our difficulties, the things that hold us back. And we ask you to create miracles, stories of your redemption, stories that we can tell with such joy and daring that we would be like Paul. Stories that could be told in front of kings. Stories that could be told in front of leopards, lep lepers, not leopards. <laughs> There's your humor for you. <laughs> um, stories that could be told in front of people that have nothing in this world and can really bless them. Lord, you are not a respecter of persons. Kings or peasants, we are all valuable to you, and you died for us. And so I just pray, Jesus, that with whatever we have, we would recognize that we are intended to be people of influence if we lay that down. If we lay whatever we have down, we will change the world.
for your glory. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Take us where we are. Amen.